cabin is exciting because it's a DAO that's creating something in the real world. They're building cities. In fact, as I recorded this interview, the cabin community was building a bathhouse right outside the room where we were talking. As you listen to this interview with Jonathan Hillis, Cabin's co-founder, notice three things. First, how building in the real world shields Cabin from some effects of the market downturn. Second, notice why Cabin is having its community build cities instead of just hiring construction crews. It's one of the questions that I was especially intrigued by. And number three, check out what Cabin did to get its first members and what it does on an ongoing basis to continue to grow its community. I'm Andrew Warner. This podcast is presented by Origami, which helps ambitious communities launch and grow DAOs. Here's the interview. Let's start big vision and then get concrete with me, if you don't mind. Cabin is building a network city for online creators. If you think about what a city actually is, a city at its core is a shared culture, a shared economy, shared governance structures. And historically, these things have all been in one place. And cities are built around the dominant technology of an era. For the past century, that's been cars. And so we've gotten cities that are are designed around cars. Um, and in this next century, we believe cities are going to be designed around the internet. And the interesting thing about the internet is that it removes some of the boundaries of geography. You don't have to be in the same place to communicate with people. What Cabin is all about is imagining and building a network city that has the same things that a normal city has, high density of culture, economy, you know, shared governance. But instead of all being in one place, it's spread out across a global network of physical locations. Okay. Today, it is where you have a cabin. By the end of this week, you'll have a bathhouse. You've got these sheds that are turned into rooms, which people playfully call shrooms. Our first uh, location is uh, outside of Austin, uh, about 45 minutes west of town. Um, and you're right, we're building all sorts of stuff out here at Neighborhood Zero um, and developing it into a really community-centric property. Um, we actually do also have two other cabin neighborhoods, um, both of which are, are in California. Um, and we've run pilots with a couple other potential neighborhoods recently, um, you know, and so we, we have a, a list of places that we're interested in bringing into the cabin network, um, you know, in, in places like Puerto Rico and Greece and um, Slovenia and uh, Costa Rica and Portugal um, and Idaho and, you know, lots of other places around the world. The place that I know that's in Texas Hill Country is a cabin very much in nature. The other places don't necessarily have to be that way, right? Yeah. So, you know, we've been spending the, the past year trying to figure out what is a cabin neighborhood and what, what should be a cabin neighborhood. And what we've really come to in that process is um, that a cabin neighborhood should probably be within about an hour of a major airport that you can fly into, um, but typically outside of an urban area um, with nature out the front door. So easy access to nature and, um, you know, high-speed internet, uh, at least 100 megabits a second. Uh, and, you know, um, the advantage of being in a slightly more exurban area 
is, you know, not only can, can you get the access to nature, but you can also actually build things. And this is one of the big problems that cities are facing right now is that due to land costs and regulation, it's becoming incredibly expensive to build housing. We have this insane housing crisis in the United States in particular. Um, and so part of what we're doing is, is trying to leave urban areas and recreate a high density environment where people can have wonderful interactions with other humans, but in places that have, um, you know, a different set of trade-offs and as a result have better access to nature and have, um, you know, ideally in the long run, 10x cheaper and better housing options. When I lived in San Francisco, if I went an hour south, I would end up in a beautiful environment, a lot of space. And that's the Bay Area, which is actually um, a pretty large, um, you know, uh, like urban area, even outside of the core cities of the Bay. You know, it still extends out and is is obviously very expensive relative to the rest of the country. You know, you come to a place like Austin, you drive 45 minutes outside of town and you're in a pretty rural location. Um, so we're on 28 acres here in the Texas Hill Country. Um, and, you know, that's something that uh, gives us a lot of room to to have nature out the front door, to have the space to to build what we want and, and to, um, you know, live in the way that we want. Why couldn't you do this as a standard company? Hire professional builders instead of having the community build things like the pergola and the bathhouse and maybe be done within a year. Yeah. Um, so first of all, I, the fact that we're a DAO um, is it's it's something that we end up talking a lot about on podcasts, right? But um, it, it's sort of funny because it's like if you, you know, were an LLC um, and every time you went on a podcast, somebody like asked you about the details of your incorporation structure. Um, it's important. It's It's very important, but it's not necessarily like, um, it's not the, it's a means to an end. It's not the end itself. And the means to the end for us is how do we, you know, use structures that provide different types of governance opportunities, um, to a community and different types of, of community engagement. And if you're building something like a city, um, then that stuff's actually really important. That's the kind of the core of what a city is. Um, and so, yeah, we, we, uh, could have structured it as, um, you know, a C-Corp or something like that. Um, I think if you look at the history of company towns <laughs> that are sort of structured in that way, um, they don't tend to go very well. Um, and I think an important part of, of exploring some of these things in the context of a DAO is that it allows us to take a different approach and start with a little bit of a fresh slate, still very informed by history. Um, but it gives us some room to experiment and explore with different structures for things like governance and community engagement um, that are really at the core of what it means to build something like a city. Can you give me an example of what you call a company town where a group of owners decided they were going to lay out what the town would look like and what happened that you're yeah, trying sure. to avoid? Um, I'll give you a couple of examples. It's a pretty interesting history um, <clears throat> and I don't know a ton about it, but uh, you know, Hershey, Pennsylvania, for instance, right? I believe was essentially started as or quickly became a company town for the uh, manufacturing facilities of Hershey candy bars. Um, and, you know, even even something like um, Disney, uh, you know, you, you don't think of Disney World as a company town. You think of it as an amusement park. But the original goal, actually, when they started building Disney World was to build a city. 
Um, and, you know, it obviously still has some sort of feeling or components of, of what a city is like. Um, but, you know, it, if you're building in that type of environment, you end up building um, in, in the way that is uh, described perhaps best, in my opinion, by in the book, um, seeing like a state, uh, these sort of like highly legible top-down, you know, centralized structures, um, which, you know, look great on paper, look great in models, um, you know, or even you look at something like the sort of Corbusier, um, you know, radiant city, um, which really derives from, from the original idea of a garden city, which is what suburbs came out of. And, you know, these sort of things, they like, they look great on paper. Um, they look great when you're like looking at it literally from above on a big model, you know, everything is clean and, and, um, you know, looks very organized. Um, but a lot of these environments are actually just not very pleasant places to live. Um, and so to, to go back to your, the part of your question about like, well, why didn't you just hire a construction company to like build everything? Why, why are you doing it yourself? I think what we're discovering or really rediscovering, um, is something that, I think comes from an architectural lineage of Jane Jacobs, uh, from Christopher Alexander's timeless way of building a pattern language. These, these ideas that, you know, we've gotten to the point with most architecture where people are designing things on computers in an abstract landscape that is completely removed from the reality of the physical space that the thing is being built on. Um, and then they're just plopping, you know, down these, these, uh, like copy paste houses, literally, um, you know, in suburbs or whatever. And what we're doing is completely different. It's, it's a different way of building that is much more, um, in tuned with the environment, uh, much more community centric. Everybody comes together for build weeks at cabin where we show up and we figure out you know, what we want to build, there's typically a build captain who, you know, is kind of spearheading it, but everybody's contributing and making little modifications based on the actual physical environment we're building in. And not only does that result, I think, in a much better process for um, creating spaces, um, it also works itself as a bonding mechanism for the community. And we found that these build weeks are really the core of um, you know, where cabin culture thrives. And so then what are the advantages of having a DAO? Yeah. So, um, an important distinction to make here is that we are not a monolithic DAO, um, where there's one, you know, organization that, that controls everything. Um, we're big believers in, um, you know, what's often called pods or squads. Um, the idea that ultimately like the most important thing in organizational design is having small autonomous groups that can execute on specific missions. And so what that means for us is that, um, we have an overall DAO, um, you know, but we also then have these pods, which, which for instance, every neighborhood is its own independently, um, operated autonomous legal entity. Um, and then also the service providers that do work on behalf of the DAO are also structured in these pods we call fellowships. And the goal there is to keep things um, small and local and to put as much uh, sort of autonomy and decision-making power in the edges of the network. Um, and so if you want to see what the DAO actually, you know, votes on or, or does, you can go, anybody uh, can go look at our snapshot. Um, so if you go to snapshot.org 
slash hash slash cabindow.eth, um, you'll see all of the proposals that we've ever had, which includes basically anytime we're doing budget allocations from the main DAO treasury, um, you know, into these specific pods or into, um, you know, initiatives that, that we're, we're running. Um, but ultimately I think what we want to see is that a lot of the decision-making is actually happening, um, you know, not at this like monolithic direct democracy DAO vote level, um, but in the context of these smaller organizations, which together form a constellation, um, uh, or, or a network. And that ultimately what the DAO will govern is the rules of that network. And so are individual squads also separate DAOs? Yeah, in some sense, I think they absolutely are separate DAOs, either separate DAOs or other types of structures like LLCs. And I think this is something we're going to see that is increasingly common within the DAO world is that, um, you know, DAO is a pretty broad and ambiguous term. Um, but when I think about DAOs, you know, at the core, um, what they are is, is on-chain governance mechanisms. And the kind of simplest on-chain governance mechanism is called a multi-sig, a multi-signature wallet, which is just like a group of people that collectively control a set of funds in a wallet. And so the way we think about it is, is that, um, you know, pods are essentially typically structured as these multi-signature wallets. Each one of those you can think of as its own separate DAO. And Cabin is really the constellation or network of these DAOs. I see. And so I could individually buy 28 acres somewhere, propose that I become involved in Cabin. Cabin's members vote me in, but I could own the property start building it myself if I want to, instead of having the community build it, you're nodding for the audience. This is so far on track. Yep. Yep. If I'm in, what do I need to contribute to Cabin and what does Cabin come back to me with? Yeah. Great question. We're still at the stage where um, we only have a few neighborhoods and we're trying to be very deliberate and intentional about the way that we onboard them, the way that we partner with them. Um, and the interesting thing about these these neighborhoods is that everybody, every neighborhood is different, right? Each, and this is why it's so important to have autonomy at the neighborhood level, because, um, you know, there's no reason why most of the decisions about what we do here in the Texas Hill Country should be made by people who are at the neighborhood, you know, in the Eastern Sierra in California and vice versa. Um, you know, you want to have as much sort of local uh, control as possible. Um, because like every neighborhood is unique and different. So, um, a big part of the process right now of bringing on new neighborhoods is figuring out what that structure and partnership should look like sort of in e each case. But generally speaking, what we are trying to do right now is build out a co-living network. Um, and so the way that this works is that you can come right now and co-live with us at neighborhood zero. Um, you can get a co-living pass, which allows you to come spend time here, um, you know, and then also spend time in other neighborhoods in the network. Um, and these are month-to-month -month flexible structures that allow you to come and, um, you know, either stay for, for a couple months in a place and then go to a different neighborhood or, um, you know, stay longer in, in a single location. Um, and ultimately, the way that, that this will work and the, the reason why um, you know, at the core in the long run, I think a DAO structure makes sense for the, the network of neighborhoods is that uh, right now the governance is primarily about bootstrapping this and getting it started. But over time, as, as we grow, 
um, increasingly the governance will be about this question of who gets to be a neighborhood and who doesn't. Um, and once you are a neighborhood, that gives you the ability then to, you know, be a part of this community and to bring in the amazing people from the cabin network to co-live your property, to help build things, to be a part of what you're building. That passport that lets tenants become co-living members, but go from one neighborhood to the other, that's issued by cabin and then honored by the other neighborhoods. Exactly. That's a good way to think about it, right? We have physical chip embedded passport cards that you can, you can get. Um, you know, you can scan them on your phone. They have a public private key pair embedded in them. Uh, and yeah, these are a cabin level, um, you know, um, um, token an access token that gets you the ability then to come live across the cabin network. Can I come and stay for the weekend? I wanted in preparation for this interview to do that, but I don't think I could. Yeah, that's true. We've explored a lot of different models over time for how people live in our spaces. Um, you know, we've tried these sort of like shorter term Airbnb style stays. We've tried um, like retreats where you come, you know, with your own DAO or your own team or whatever and come as a group. We've tried residency programs where that's actually our origin was as a creator residency program where we, um, the DAO got to vote on who came out to stay, uh, you know, for, for a month for a residency. Um, and, you know, we, now we're, we, we're really focused on co-living. And the reason for that is, you know, all those other methods that I described can be helpful ways to bootstrap a community and let people dip their toes in the water and try things out. Um, but ultimately, we're building a city and cities have long-term residents. And so in order to start to build a deeper culture um, at individual neighborhoods and across the network, we really want to focus on people who are coming and being a part of what we're building for longer time periods. And so, yeah, it is certainly possible if you're, you know, a member of the community, um, you know, and, and you, you could come out and maybe crash for, for a couple nights, uh, if we have an extra room available. Um, but generally speaking, what we're trying to do is, um, encourage the sort of deep community that, that only comes from longer term stays. I feel like maybe you're underselling the, the value of a DAO here. I don't mean to undersell DAOs. I think DAOs are um, an incredibly important structure. Uh, they're, they're a new primitive for governance and a new primitive for how people get together as groups and self-organize in a particularly digitally native way. Um, I think that is one of the most important um, technologies that has been developed uh, in I don't know how long, but, but, you know, possibly hundreds of years. Um, and, you know, I, I, that's why I'm spending my life, you know, working on, on a DAO, uh, because I believe in them and I believe in, in the way that we're trying to use a DAO to create a, a city. Um, and I believe that's something that DAOs unlock. Um, but I also, uh, you know, I, I think that when you start throwing around acronyms, particularly technical acronyms and particularly crypto acronyms, um, you know, it, it can turn people off or it can cause people to think, oh, this isn't for me or I don't understand this. And so it's not that I'm trying to undersell it so much as um, I, I think that one of the things that's great about Cabin is that because we're so real, uh, because we're so IRL, because we're um, actual humans getting together, 
it, th there are more accessible ways for people to understand and, and appreciate what we're doing. I do find, though, that it is a little bit challenging to fully understand it. There is not a clear value proposition. I don't go, what is it, cabin.community, I think is a domain. Am I right? Cabin.city. Cabin.city, yeah. excuse me. I go to cabin.city, and there isn't a clear value prop. Do this and get that. It's more like yeah. we have an infinite number of things that we could do in the future, or this is the vision of where we're going. This is what we've built. And here's how we're changing governance. It does make for a little bit of complication. And my sense is yeah. because you're inventing the city in real time, inventing the value prop in real time, inventing the way that you govern in real time and all of those things happening at once are either going to be exciting to somebody or they're going to be completely confusing yeah. and they're going to want to step away until the thing is clarified and then they'll come in. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. But you know what? The, the fun thing about building a city in ex-urban environments is that the type of person who, you know, is excited about uh, bushwhacking through the, um, you know, corners of the internet and, and finds their way to us, um, tends to be the type of pioneer who's a great fit for the city that we're building. I get that. I think I saw one real estate broker say that he was literally up nights trying to dream of what kind of city he can add to cabin. Yeah. <laughs> because if he could build anything, then what should you build and it, what should it have and all that stuff. Like he's imagining Maybe we do communal bathrooms, but it should be spa-like. And so how do oh, yeah. we create a spa-like experience, right? Which is what we have out here now. It's it's kind of crazy, but the, the area where we're putting this bathhouse in is actually sort of the final finishing touch on this whole outdoor spa area that has a sauna and a cold plunge pool and an outdoor gym and now this bathhouse. And the community just keeps adding to it. And that that's a really magical thing here. Like, Yes, it's it's confusing and complicated and uh, multi-dimensional and multi-directional. Um, that is all because it's it's not a single uh, you know top-down vision, right? The the way that I think DAOs operate the best is when you have a really clear long-term vision of where you want to go, right? We're building a network city, um, but what that means is very personally defined by the community and by individual members of the community and the ways that they contribute to that, um, you know, are the ways that uh, end up making it both complicated and interesting. I'm curious about how this crypto winter has affected you. I think market cycles affect everybody. Um, and certainly there are, you know, um, I, I, I would imagine there are fewer people showing up on our community call or, or every day in our discord now than there were, um, you know, maybe six months ago, sort of when it was the, the height of the um, bull cycle. Um, but I think that's actually a good thing. I think that market cycles are good because you have periods of um, great divergence and exploration and you have great, you know, periods of convergence and focus. And um we were running in many, many different directions six months ago in the bull market. You know, everything is possible. Uh, every, everyone's excited. You can just like explore um, and dream big. And then, you know, reality sets in and in a bear market and um, you have to focus and you have to trim back and you have to decide what's important. 
And that's a very natural process. Literally, nature does that, right? Um, if you look at trees, uh, I spent a lot of time wandering around out here and, and at other cabin neighborhoods looking at nature. And one thing you really notice from trees is that they they do this. They branch out. They put out a bunch of fresh branches, you know, maybe in the spring. Um, and some of those branches keep growing leaves. Other ones die off, um, you know, and they're, they're sort of, it's a classic um, uh, almost like explore, exploit algorithm trade-off. Um, and DAOs go through the same, you know, patterns. And, and uh, I, I think that's a very positive thing in general. And then for us in particular, you know, um, a lot of these projects that have really been impacted by this market cycle, you know, there's a great, I think it might be a Warren Buffett quote that's like, um, when the tide goes out, you can see who's wearing pants. Um, a lot of these projects, you know, I think, to be honest, weren't wearing pants. And I think a lot of crypto in general, there's a lot of scams, a lot of, you know, kind of fly-by-wire stuff. Um and that gives the space a bad name, but there's also, you know, the 5% that's, that's going to change the world. Um, and I think we at least like to believe that we're in that 5%. And, and part of the reason that gives me a lot of hope that that's true is that we're a very real thing. Like all of crypto and all of Web3 could go away tomorrow and we would still be out here you know, in, in the real world, uh, building things. And, um, you know, I think that we have, if you have a really dedicated community and a big vision and you're doing actual real things in the real world, then there's very little that can stop you. What are some of the things that you were doing that are in retrospect, not necessary and you had to cut back on? Yeah. Great question. Um, so I think th there's two ways I'll answer that question. The first one is like, we were just, um, you know, building out a lot of, uh, you mentioned guilds earlier, right? We were sort of like building out these structures by which we could grow the writers and engineers and designers. And, you know, we, we were just like bringing on contributors of all types. I think in um, the, the spring season, we paid out bounties to hundreds of contributors to do all kinds of different stuff. Um, and now we're, you know, operating with a much smaller group of active contributors to the DAO, which I think is actually causing us to be more efficient and get more done instead of less. <laughs> what did you do before that now you're not doing anymore? So let me talk about the biggest one, which I think mm -hmm, is strategically interesting for us. So we were, we were building a lot of software products and I think there was this, um, you know, hypothesis six months ago during during the bull cycle that the way that DAOs were going to succeed and you know create sustainable business models and all this stuff was by building software products for themselves and then spinning those out or selling them to other DAOs or you know whatever um i think that's still a possible viable path for DAOs but what we realized is that um you know the core of our product is our IRL experiences and our community is really what's at the core of what we do. And, um, you know, we were on the right path with some interesting software products. We were building out, um, you know, a pretty fully fledged, uh, version of our, our passport stamps. Um, you know, we were building out a token curated registry, um, which is the actual uh, implementation of the thing I was describing earlier, where over the long run, we, we become more like a protocol. 
and um, that protocol governs the sort of city limits with what neighborhoods are in the city. Um, we were building that on top of this sort of crypto primitive called a token curated registry, which I think is still going to be very relevant and important in the long run. Um, we were building out, we built a like a hacker news for DAOs um, called Blaze. Uh, we built, um, you know, some other, other products. Um, and all of those things were interesting and, and, you know, valuable. Um, but what we realized, particularly for instance, with the, the passport stamping product was, you know, we were investing some time and effort in that, but we were also doing a ton of other things, including all of our core IRL experiences and building and co-living and all this. Um, at the same time, there were three or four other organizations that were just building basically the same idea, this passport stamping thing. There's Gitcoin Passport, there's Otter Space, there's Disco, which are all kind of like different takes on this same idea. Um, and those organizations were approaching us and saying, will you please adopt our product, you know? Um, and so I think what we found is that by being a really strong brand community organization that's focused on our core thing, um, we can actually interoperate with the rest of the DAO ecosystem. And it's, it's net positive for everyone. Like people want to give us free software. We don't need to build it ourselves. And by you using it, you help them improve their software, which then helps the entire ecosystem. Exactly. And so... That's what you're saying. It's better to have a, a down cycle, which cleanses you of doing that, forces you to stop, and right. then allows others to take it up and then get better. That's one of the best answers that I've heard to that for that question ever. Thank you. I think you happen to mention that you're not incorporated. You're not even like a official nonprofit. I'm wondering about liability risk for you, John, and for your members by not having a corporate shield of some kind. What do you think about that? Yeah. How do you think about it? So um, we are a specific type of organization. The DAO is called an unincorporated nonprofit association. And this is a legal structure um, that you know, is often used by things like neighborhood associations or church groups. Um, and we essentially are a neighborhood association. That's how I think about the DAO. Um, and so uh, the unincorporated nonprofit association is a pretty natural fit for that, particularly given that the DAO itself is not doing most of the things, right? The DAO is, is the network of neighborhoods. But like we talked about, each neighborhood is independently owned and operated. These fellowships of service providers um, are also independent entities. And so... Um, you know, the unincorporated nonprofit association does a couple really great things for us. Um, because we're chartered as a Wyoming UNA, we are able to um, have liability protection for members of the DAO. Um, and we're able to um, enter into legal agreements. Um, and we're, you know, able to um, have a structure that allows for the full flexibility of a DAO, um, you know, in terms of, of membership and governance, um, while still being able to interface with the legal system. And so my sense is that the, the, you know, I'm obviously not a lawyer, talk to your own lawyer and get your own legal advice. But, um, my sense is that this, uh, UNA structure, which was originally developed in a white paper that, um, A16Z released, um, is, is a, a very good structure for these type of DAOs that form constellations of other entities. 
Yeah. So, um, I do. Uh, so the neighborhood zero <clears throat> was a project that I started working on after I left Instacart, um, in 2020, 2020 and, you know, end of 2020, beginning of 2021. Um, and, uh, you know, became, became a DAO, uh, later on that year as part of this process of launching this creator residency program. Um, it is set up as a, um, a tokenized LLC, um, that we, we structured as one of the first, um, you know, property based tokenized LLCs. And the goal there was to set up a structure that, um, you know, over time we have the ability to, um, you know, basically bring in more people as owners and, and have ideally in the long run, it become a community owned property. Now there are some challenges here, um, you know, particularly given that the, the Howey test, um, which is at the core of securities regulation is, is, um, you know, specifically based on an orange orchard in Florida. Um, and so it's literally about real estate and that makes it particularly challenging to think about how to navigate, um, you know, the context of, um, of tokenized entities or, or ownership structures for real estate. Um, and so that's not something that, um, you know, we, we want to tread lightly and carefully and make sure we're doing things the right way. Um, but over the long run, you know, that that's the hope. What do you think other people who are building, who ha want to participate and use your structure can do with your structure? Like, do you, do you look around at the world and say, look, we haven't nailed it yet. But we're on to something, and I wish that industry over there would do it. I think the cool thing about DAOs is how flexible um, of a structure they are. And so I think that, you know, over time, the, the sky's the limit in terms of what types of organizations can be, um, can be structured this way. Um, and I think that in particular, the ability to have this sort of umbrella network um, that is a very digitally native organization that can then interface with lots of other um, independent entities is just a, a pretty interesting way of doing things for, you know, anything in the world. <laughs> um, uh, but I, you know, w w what I'm really focused on is like, even just within the space of building Cabin and this network city, there's a tremendously broad uh, canvas to play with. And so what I'm most interested in is, um, you know, what does it look like for us to try lots of different types of neighborhoods? What would it look like to have a neighborhood where we start out from scratch and buy a piece of land and, um, you know, maybe do some crazy radical exchange type uh, economic structure on it where we have like harbinger taxes and, um, you know, develop like uh, some sort of cool community ownership model based on that system, you know, or what would it, what's a harbinger like? tax? Oh man. Um, so, uh, harbinger taxes are an idea from this, this book, um, radical markets, uh, which, you know, is by, um, Glenn well, and, and, um, was the forward to it is written by Vitalik Buterin. Um, and it's this fascinating, uh, piece of academia that sort of predates um, the kind of current state of blockchains and, and DAOs, uh, but in many ways speaks to those structures. Um, and so one, there's a lot of ideas within that book about how you could rebuild um, 
economic systems in, in ways that make a lot of sense in a tokenized world. One of those is something called a harbinger tax, which, um, you know, I, I won't like try and go too far down the rabbit hole here, but basically a harbinger tax is this idea that instead of having individuals own plots of land, um, which creates a lot of perverse uh, incentives economically, right? If you look at, this is actually part of the core problem of cities right now. The reason why they're not building more stuff is because of NIMBYs, because there's people who are basically saying, well, yeah, I've got my plot of land here and, and I don't want you, you know, to build something next to it. Um, and so there's people who have, you know, if you go back even to look at like um, Rousseau's classic writings on political philosophy that underlie a lot of um, our modern political thinking, he says that like the, the root of, of our political um, ills is this idea of, of private uh, land ownership. Um, and so anyway, there's this, um, you know, sort of philosophical approach um, based on some of Henry George's work, uh, uh, Georgism about like land rents. And the idea of a harbinger tax is that instead of allowing people to own individual plots of land, what you do is you have all of the land be in some sort of commons. And then you have this like tax system where people are self-assessing taxes for the place that they live. But then if somebody else wants to pay more taxes, then they can like swap places with that person. Um, and it, it's the sort of thing that's like... Or, or buy the place. Be, if yeah. I understand it right, right here, I'm, I, ever since I moved mm -hmm. to Austin, all people talk about is what their property is valued mm -hmm. at. They have an incentive to reduce the value of their property because then they pay less taxes until it's time to sell. And then they have an incentive to right. increase the value because then they right. get more money. And so you end up with people basically, clearly, literally faking the value of mm -hmm. their property for the tax collector. And we talk to people in, in the neighborhood do that all the time. It's just the thing. But what Harbinger, am yeah, I getting Harbinger right? Harbinger tax, tax yeah. uh, system does is it says, okay, tell us what the thing is worth and we'll tax you on it. But if it's really worth that, you have to be willing to sell at yes. that price. And so- Name the price that you're going to sell at. We're going to tax you at that price and be prepared. Someone could buy buy it for that price. That way, if you take a million dollar property and say it's worth $100,000, someone will come in and buy, you, buy it, which will hold you accountable. Right. Okay, so you're just saying, look, we have a lot of space, a lot of room to think about this. I want to play just a thought experiment here just to create more ideas for where DAOs and this new structure and this new ethos right. could go. The natural next step is an easy one in my mind. You're handling living, and there is working there too. I wonder if it would make sense for people to do office sure. buildings where it's clearly not where you are, but that seems like yeah. one, right? Yeah, we're we're already seeing that, right? So there's um, the Empire Dow in in New York City. I've been to their co-working space, uh, which has it just like had amazing energy. is a really cool um, building, uh, you know, in in Manhattan. Um, there's another group uh, that uh, has been experimenting with this um, called Build, um, though I think they may have kind of pivoted a little bit. Um, there's also, uh, I know City Dow actually just announced a proposal where they're looking at like a kind of co-working space Dow lab in in Denver, um, and there there are others. So yeah, I think that the the co-working model is certainly a natural extension. 
Is it foolish to think about then what's the Hertz rental car alternative? I've thought a lot about this question, of course. Um, so, you know, I came from Instacart uh, before this. I spent six years. I was a director of product there for, for shoppers and marketplace and, um, you know, worked across the business. But in particular, I thought a lot about the gig economy and the sort of marketplace structures that were developing <clears throat> in these big Web2 marketplaces. Um, and so it seemed like a natural extension to me to think about, okay, well, what would the, um, you know, sort of Daoified version of like an Uber or an Instacart or a DoorDash or whatever look like? Um, I think that, you know, that was, that was the way people were thinking a, a couple of years ago. Um, and I think there's still something there. I think that like any of these marketplace structures, um, probably could operate in in tokenized ways or DAO-like ways where you have greater um, ownership on all sides of the marketplace. And I think that's one of the big limitations that we ran into and that um, ultimately like got me out of the Web2 model um, was the feeling of lack of, um, of ownership and lack of... Um, uh, you know, sort of economic models that were not just commodified race to the bottom structures for, for gig workers in particular. Um, so I think all of that is very feasible and I, I'd love to see that in the future. Um, I think though at the current moment, you know, that that's probably like two or three cycles from now. Um, and what I'm most interested in right now is, um, how, how do we not just like rebuild Airbnb, but build something completely different and better. Um, and the way that I think you do that in, in a Web3 context certainly has to do with ownership, but it's not just that. It, and it's not just governance. And it's not, um, you know, just the sort of like core primitives. It's also about the people and the community and the interactions between people. And, you know, people who want to become um, caretakers, you know, who, who are starting a cabin neighborhood, they're not the same type of people who want to list a uh, room on Airbnb, right? They're not just like trying to get a little bit of extra side income. They're trying to actually be a part of something and to build a community of people. And we've now, because of the pandemic and also Web2 technology and, and a lot of other things, we've come to a point in the world where people can work from anywhere. And can work from anywhere is not, I can work from any city anywhere. It's anywhere what's the new thing that hadn't and couldn't exist before and so an environment right. in nature that has a hundred uh, megabits per second internet was not really necessary if anything if you asked that you would get looked at weirdly because you weren't understanding and appreciating nature right. this is not a place to bring your laptop but it could be and it's a better place to bring your laptop than the office right. and so i i get what you're trying to do you're saying but you what you're saying to me though is andrew i am not looking to just bring the to dow up every web to technology the way that maybe some people were trying to in the early days make every web uh site into a mobile experience and turn it into an app and they thought that they were actually moving into the mobile world no it was the people who said there's something completely right, different right. here we have a vision here and it just happens to be empowered by the technology that's here exactly exactly i think the the biggest um uh, problem of transitions between these sort of uh, um, technological, you know, cycles, um, like you described from from Web one to Web two, or or now from Web two to Web three, is skeuomorphism, 
and this like desire to just take whatever worked in the old world and do this, copy it into the new world. And that rarely works very well because the new world has new rules and new ways that it works. And the new technology has new things that are better and that are worse. And there's sort of this classic, um, um, you know, I, idea, uh, like this is what, when people talk about disruptive technologies, um, if you go actually like look at the underlying text there, what it's about is not about like, oh, there's this new technology that just makes everything better. It's like there are new trade-offs and some things are going to be better and some things are going to be worse. And so if you just try to recreate, copy paste the old thing onto the new technology, it's not going to work nearly as well as if you try to figure out what is actually the, the natively interesting and, and, you know, novel opportunity with this technology that you couldn't have done on the old thing. And the new tool set gives you a community of people who can help you decide people who are there to help evangelize. What else is involved in this new tool set? Yeah, um... So I, I think it's exactly the things that make for a great city, which is why cities feel like such a natural use case to me, right? I talked at the top of the, the episode about um, the, th the three things that are kind of core to cities, um, culture, economy, and governance. And if you look at everything that's happened in Web3, it's really about one of those three things. It's about how do we have um, lower transaction cost economic transactions it's about how do we use these new governance primitives, and it's about how do we build new types of communities and culture. And if you add those three things together and you do them in a physical location or a set of physical locations, um, you know, I think, I think that's why the idea of new cities is so interesting. How did you get your first members? How did it, how did it start? Yeah, so we actually spent, um, as I was, was wrapping up my time at Instacart, I was exploring the transition from, um, you know, the, how the gig economy was going to start applying to knowledge workers um, and became very interested in the creator economy, which was sort of just, just starting to get off the ground at the time um, and ended up starting a group called the Creator Co-op, um, which was this group of independent online workers that we'd get together and, and just, you know, talk about how we were building our online businesses and presences. Um, at the same time, I was building this, you know, cabin in the woods. Um, when the cabin was done, the first thing I did was invite a lot of the creator co-op out. Um, and that group came out and we were hanging out, sitting around the campfire one night, decided to start this creator residency program where we were going to, um, you know, do this, what we thought was a good sort of first experiment with DAOs and, and um, a tokenized governance structure, um, you know, which was something several of us had been interested in. Um, and so we tried to create this really simple primitive for that, where people could contribute to a crowdfund, that crowdfund would pay for creators to come out for residencies, and then the people who contributed would get this token to vote on who got to come out for the residencies, this very clean, simple exploration of how we might use some of these governance tools. Um, and then, of course, you know, over time, we ran those residencies and more people started showing up and more interest started accruing around this community. And you know, that's when we really became a DAO and, and started growing. Finally, I've been focused on you, but you're not the only person here in this group. No, certainly I'd not. like to find out about one of the members. I have lots of people in mind. One thing that's wonderful about Cabin is we have a huge community of, of full of wonderful leaders who take on their own roles within the organization. Um, and so it's certainly not not uh, just me. Um, uh, one example I'll share with you is Charlie. Um, Charlie is one of, he's our builder in residence right now at Neighborhood Zero. And um, he's living out here. 
um, on the property uh, and leading the builds of the bathhouse we were talking about, as well as the shed rooms. Um, and Charlie and I have been, you know, ha ha just walking around the land and collaborating and figuring out what we want to build. Um, he's a, an architectural engineering student in Canada. Um, he's currently on a co-op term break from his program. Um, and, you know, just on his own initiative, he came down to help out with our first build week and is now down here living in, and helping build more things. And um, I think Charlie just embodies the spirit of um, somebody who really wants to come contribute to the building of a neighborhood. Uh, and that is the, the kind of what's at the core of our growth as an organization. Would you introduce me to him when we're done? Yeah, I'd be happy to. Cool. Yeah. He's also got an amazing YouTube series um, about the build process he's going through. And that's another version of this uh, kind of like content loop we've created is we we build things, we co-live, and then we also create the content and, and talk about what we're doing. Thanks for being on here. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. This was a great conversation. Cool. And there's the interview. For more about Cabin, check out cabin.city. And for more about origami, check out joinorigami.com.